0: And uh, I'm really excited, Uh, Justin Carl, he is um, one of the pastors at Sojourn uh, Midtown in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, Justin, uh, they've been there for about four years. They were on staff with Crew for about four years before that. If you guys are familiar with Crew or Sojourn, give you kind of a a point of reference there. So we're really happy to have you this morning, Justin. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. I'm excited to be with y'all. Hey, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. It's only one verse, so you don't have to stand long. I'm so excited to be here with y'all today and continue in the Lord's Prayer series. And our verse today is Matthew 6. It's verse 12. It's the second to last petition in the Lord's Prayer. And here it is. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray. Lord, Father God, we love you. We trust you. And we're so thankful for your prayer that you've given us a way that we can know you a way we can connect with you, and Lord, it's so infinitely deep, but it's simple enough for a child to memorize, and Lord, that's just a parable of who you are. Anyone can know God, but will never ever know all of you, and that's the journey we're on. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So today, I like to think this is the best line of the Lord's Prayer. So thank you, Garrison, that I get the best one. And I think it's the best one because some would argue it's the core of all of Christianity. This is the apex of Christianity, that God has forgiven us, forgiven our debts, and now empowers us to forgive others or forgive those indebted to us. So this morning, there's not a lot of mystery. You know, there's not a lot of places other to go Instead, we're gonna look at this simple verse and we're gonna hopefully do a deep dive into what it really means to ask God to forgive us our debts as we also forgive those our debtors. And so here's the three places. We're gonna ask, we're gonna look at it three ways. Why ask God to forgive our debts? What does it what does as we also have forgiven our debtors mean? And how do we apply these truths deeply? So if we're moving from simple to deep let's dive in. Why ask God to forgive our debts? And so we have to know what debts are in this passage. And it's a question of what debts are because in Luke's gospel, there's also the Lord's prayer. But in Luke's gospel, he doesn't use the word debts. It reads like this, and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Luke shows us that the word debts here means sins. But the question remains, why does Matthew use the word debts? And I would argue because Matthew knew about debts. See, Matthew, when he was called to follow Jesus, was called straight out of his workplace. We work at Enterprise or at the grocery store or at a gas station or at an office building. And Jesus was literally walking by Matthew one day, and he said, You follow me. And he called him straight out of his workplace, and he was a tax collector. Which doesn't sound too bad. I mean, we don't love the IRS nowadays. But back then, it was kind of like being a mobster. Because remember, Israel was under enemy occupation. The Romans had conquered, and they ruled over them with an iron fist. It was a brutal regime that collected heavy taxes on the Jews and everyone that the Romans dominated. And so for Matthew, a Jewish man, to say, Oh, I'll work for you, Romans, made everyone around Matthew say, you're a traitor. You're the person who's using your advantage in language and knowing who we are and knowing what we do and knowing how much money we make to exact the taxes correctly for the Romans. And so Matthew is kind of a scoundrel, and he probably remembers Jesus taught on the Lord's Prayer probably multiple times. He taught about prayer. But to Matthew, he likes to use the word debts because he knew about debts, the debts he hung over people. The debts he had sicked Roman guards to rough up families over. The debts that he'd overcollected, which was a common thing for tax collectors to take a little cut off the top. The debts that probably had made Matthew rich by collaborating with the people who had conquered the Jews. And so when we read this, I go there to say, if we're going to understand this verse, we need to see our sin as vividly as Matthew does. To see that our sins have consequences. Our sins are deadly. And if debts are sins, it leads to this question of what is sin? And sin is the act of rebellion towards God. It's anything we do, we say, we think that's against God's wills and ways in the world. And Romans 6.23 tells us that every and any sin results in our spiritual death. And this sounds extreme, but the Bible clarifies this in Romans 14.23 says this, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So literally, anything we do as believers, anything we do as Christians that does not proceed from faith, or is not done in faith, or is not motivated by faith, is actually sin before the Lord, even if we we love Jesus. And likewise, if we don't know Jesus yet, if we're we're a non-believer in Jesus, everything we do is tainted with sin. Now, that's not to say a, a faithless act of a believer or or an action of an unbeliever, has no use. God has stories throughout the Bible of him using all sorts of actions for good, whether they're evil or, or just faithless or whatever else. But what we see is if our definition of whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin, suddenly sins aren't very small, isolated incidents. They're whole chunks of our life. Their whole decision-making processes. It's the way we carry ourselves. It's the pride in our heart. It's the lust in our eyes. It's the greed. It's the envy of others. Our sins suddenly become really big, not just, oh, I cut that guy off in traffic. That's not great either. But sin, our definition, expands. And we stop here, and I'm trying to go into great detail, because we must undergo two rotations or changes in our thinking to really get what debts are to really get the nature of sin. And the first is this. We don't just have a couple of sins that need forgiving. We don't just have just our worst highlight or low-light real sins that need forgiving. Each of us has an unpayable load of sin debt to God if every faithless act is sin. And this is terrifying. And it's scary to really think of sin in this big definition. But this is what John Piper, he's a famous preacher, puts it this way. He actually calls this the great awakening for every Christian. It's the moment that needs to happen for you to see your great sinfulness, to see the greatness of a Savior. Jesus isn't great unless you have a great need. You can say he's great to you, but he's not really great unless he really can be the Savior of an actual great sin debt. Here's the second change in our thinking. We think of our sins as primarily against one another, but the Bible would teach us our sin debt is primarily between us and God. King David highlights this after he actually committed adultery and then murdered a person, and he did this all as king, the person that's supposed to enforce laws and keep this kind of stuff from happening. He did it all. And after reflecting and going through depression and pain and restoration with God, he even declared his murder and adultery because, Lord, it's against you alone I've sinned. And so we start to see we sin against God first, and only secondarily we sin by lying, cheating, stealing, killing, harming, abusing against people. And that's all horrible. But it's most horrible because it offends a holy God, a God who demands faithful obedience of all people everywhere. And so when we sin against each other, we're actually first sinning against a creator who demands a holy life because he's a perfect God. And so. We go undergo the first rotation to see the, the largeness of our sin, and then the second is to see the depth of our sin. And what it leaves us with is we have a massive sin debt, and it's primarily towards God. But we don't want to own this. You may even feel in your seat kind of turning against, or like, this is boring, and I, I don't care, and uh, I, I know that, I know that, Justin, I, whatever, come tell me something new. But let me kind of pin down on this. There's two ways we minimize the massiveness of our sin debt. Way one is this. We minimize the massiveness by only acknowledging fixable, manageable sins that we feel like we could work off or balance out. It's okay to acknowledge a fight with your spouse, A, because it probably happens all the time, B, because you either cook their favorite meal or you bring home flowers and you're like, okay, it's all good. You acknowledge maybe I, I wasn't the best of my kid. I missed the game. I was too harsh and disciplining or something like that. And you make it up by being the fun mom or the fun dad that gets ice cream or rolls around on the floor. And you're like, okay, that's in. We're crossed out. We're good to go. Or maybe it's your volunteering. Maybe it's your giving. Maybe it's coming to church. Maybe it's coming to this church. You did something wrong during the week. You're like, I'll make up for it. We're going to get it back together on Sunday. Saturday night is over. Sunday morning Morning is here. But the thing is what we're doing, we're not bringing our sin to God because we don't, that's not how it works. You can't pay off your sins. And another way, we're only choosing to acknowledge these like incidents of sin that we think we can restore pretty quickly. You can't do that with pride. You can't do that with abusive leadership at work. You can't do that for cheating on your taxes for five decades, or maybe not five decades. That sounds like a long time, five years. But we like to just acknowledge sins that we feel like we could handle. I don't need a savior for these sins. I'll just fix it. So that's one way we minimize our, our massive sin debt. Second way we minimize it is we just compare ourselves to other, others. And this is like the lazier way. We find people, even subconsciously, that we just gossip about. We judge. We look down on. We feel a little self-righteous that we're slightly more moral in some category of life or slightly kinder. And suddenly, our sin debt gets smaller because we're saying, well, we're better than all these people. And these are two ways that we completely miss. Our sins are primarily before God, and they're infinitely bad and deep. And so this very restructuring of how our sin works, how debt works, how forgiveness works of God is in dis- on display. It may be my favorite story of Jesus in the Gospels. It's in Luke 7. And basically, Jesus is rolling around Israel preaching and teaching and healing and making disciples and being Jesus. And a Pharisee decides to invite him to dinner. And a Pharisee was the uptight religious rulers of the day. And they didn't like Jesus because, A, he was taking the attention away from them, the religious rulers. B, because they didn't think they needed any savior. And it certainly wasn't going to be this Jesus who was just a common man walking around with extraordinary abilities emanating from him. And so Jesus decides he'll come to dinner. Dinner was a huge deal back then. It was an all-day cooking and heating up a fire and baking bread and probably killing an animal and cutting it up, having olives and fruit and vegetables. And it was probably all by candlelight under a thatch roof, and it was probably way clean, even though it was a dirty world. Because holding a dinner party at a Pharisee's house was a big deal. And it was probably filled with Pharisees, maybe with their wives as well, and they were probably wearing their absolute best clothes, as Jesus was their honor guest that they weren't there to learn from as much to question or maybe to try to even impress Jesus. And in, midway through dinner, walks a woman from the city, which is a euphemism or just a saying to say a prostitute. She's not invited. She walks through the door, pushes through the people, pushes whoever out of the way to get down to Jesus' dirty feet, and she starts to weep. She starts to cry. She holds his feet. She wipes his feet with her, his, her hair. She kisses his feet. She anoints him with oil and ointment. And it's tough to even imagine a full-grown woman bending down her hair and rubbing kind of vigorously probably to get the dirt off Jesus' feet. And look what Simon the Pharisee, he's the man who owns the house, he's the man who invited Jesus over. This is what Simon says, but he doesn't even say it, it's in his mind. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He doesn't even have the courage to say that out loud. He's just sitting there judging her, just how we minimize sin in our heart. And Jesus literally reads his mind, and he tells a parable about God forgiving large debts. And then he looks at the woman, not at the man, he looks at the woman and says this, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, so he's staring at this woman sobbing over his feet, but speaking to Simon, who's thinking these ugly thoughts. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her very hair. You gave me no kiss, Simon, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment, Simon. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. It's one of the most powerful stories as the religious person who thinks he has it right is found very, very far on the outside of what God's doing in the world. And this woman, desperate, she knows she has problems. She knows she has a massive sin debt. And it just doesn't matter what you've done. It's all sin debt. She runs to Jesus and throws herself at his literal feet where animals use the restroom in the street where Jesus walks all day. Feet were not pretty, and yet she is comfortable wiping her hair on it because she sees a desperate need for Jesus. And the correlation here between our debts and God's love and our forgiveness to others is this. When we see the depths of our sin, It is the opportunity to see the greatness of God's love for us. Simon the Pharisee, he didn't have much to forgive or love anyone because he didn't think he had any sins to be forgiven for. He didn't even have time for Jesus. He invited him over as a joke to try to question him. And this woman was so desperate, she kicked down the door, knowing she might even get stoned in this encounter. But I need Jesus more than anything. So I invite you as we read this simple verse, forgive us our debts, to see the depths of our debts, to not be scared to look in the mirror, and then to see the greatness of God's love is waiting for you in Christ. And here's the best part. Just as the depths relate to the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's love and forgiveness you experience is now your capacity to love others. And that's what Jesus ends with in that parable, saying, she loves much. This woman who's experienced the gospel deeply can love deeply of others. And so that's the invitation of God's kingdom economics in this verse. See your sin deeply, experience God's love greatly, and then be empowered by God to forgive and love others. And so it comes back to the initial question. See, Jesus isn't asking us in the first half of this verse, forgive us our debts, to beg for salvation daily. He's not. He's not asking us to beg God over and over and over for salvation, even though it says forgive us our debts. We are justified by God as soon as we repent and believe in Christ for our sins and debts. I'm about to explain justification. We don't try to use big words and then run away. We're justified by God as soon as we repent and believe in Christ for our sins or debts. Colossians two thirteen through 14 says this. You don't need to turn there. And it tells us plainly, and I love this gospel presentation Paul does, because he uses this debt analogy that we've been working with. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross." If you wonder what really happened on the cross, why there's crosses on top of churches, why there's crosses on t-shirts, why there's crosses on your Bible, if you're wondering what really happened on the cross, your sin debt was nailed to a bloodied and naked Jesus on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. That would be the short summary of what happened on the cross. The entirety of the sins of all people, of all the church, of all who will believe, were nailed to Jesus Christ, and the sins were finished. And that's what we call justification. You are justified, meaning you are declared not guilty by God. Your massive sin debt is canceled out on one simple life and action and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Moreover, when Jesus was in that spot, he was declared guilty in your place. And now he's the substitute for our sins. And even more, Jesus' record of perfect righteousness, his debtlessness, his perfect life, the life that loves sinful people, that that healed people, that never sinned, you got that life. Not only are your massive sin debt forgiven, you're given a massive load of Jesus' righteousness to you. And that's the great exchange. That's the heart of the very gospel of God. That's why Veritas Dayton exists, is because this great exchange has happened for all who believe. So when Christ looks at you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see a massive sin debt. He sees a son or daughter of a glorious king. You are a part of the family forever because of what Jesus went through on the cross and resurrected for us. So Jesus isn't telling us to beg for our salvation every day since we've been just by by faith through God's grace. What's the point of asking God for forgiveness for our debts? And Jesus is pointing on our ongoing need and invitation from God of daily cleansing for our sins. As we sin, as Christians, and, and sins arise in our life, we can take it to Jesus, and he's faithful and just to cleanse us and have a renewed experience of grace in our life. And when people use that cliche, well, I'm walking with Jesus, this is what it means. The very motor and heart of your walk with Jesus, it isn't actually prayer. It isn't actually encouragement. It isn't actually r- just reading the scriptures. It's the experience of God in the gospel, taking your daily sins, taking your issues to him, feeling that cleansing, and from that, being able to pray and be encouraged and read the word of God and come to church and serve others. That's the heart of your walk with Jesus. And it's like this, when you were growing up and it was raining hard outside, and mom said, hey, if you're going to go outside, don't get muddy. But you immediately went outside, and it was a long day, and your friends came over, and you got super muddy. You played football, maybe, you played outside, you climbed trees, and by the end of the day, you were covered in mud. And you came up kind of sheepishly to the back door, because mom was explicit with one additional rule for the day. And you ring the back door, she comes to it, and the look of disappointment is pretty clear on her face. And she might discipline you, but she also cleans you up because you're a kid. She also gives you a snack and puts you down for a nap because you're not disowned for your disobedience. You might be disciplined, but you're not disowned. You're a member of this house. Your mom loves you. And that's what it's like with God. Our sins, when we're believers, don't disown us. They might cause discipline for our good. And the hope is that as we go, grow older, we find more joy in obeying, and we don't get muddy so often, or so dirty. So the second part, we're entering the second half of the verse. Now this brings the all-important question, what does, as we also have forgiven our debtors, mean? So we went, forgive us our debts, now what does it mean, we also have forgiven our debtors? And I want to lean in here to say, when you think of God, one of the characteristics of God, he has many characteristics, his holiness, his justice, his love, but one that God gives himself is forgiveness. Forgiveness is lodged at the very heart of who God is. The first time you see in the Old Testament, the word for divine forgiveness, shalak, it's in Exodus 34. And you think, oh, we'll get to learn about God when we've been good. Exodus 34 actually happens after Israel commits their worst sin, period. Moses is literally on a mountain with God. He is receiving the Ten Commandments. Commandment one is have no other idols. What is Israel doing at the base of the mountain? Making an idol. That is what is literally going on. And in the sequence of events, God reveals his character fully to Moses. And he uses this word as one of the words he describes himself as Shalak. And that means divine forgiveness or pardon. And the Bible doesn't use that word anywhere else. There's tons of words for forgiveness or overlooking sin or coming to a compromise or bringing someone even back into your family. But all those words, there's a two-wayness. It's two broken people working it out, two people's versions of events working themselves out, two people working together for a better situation, Jacob and Esau working it out. But shalak is reserved only for God to us because it's a one-way forgiveness. Because God never needs needs an apology, needs to give an apology. God never sins. God's never wrong. He never needs our forgiveness. God's love and forgiveness is an absolute one-way trip to you. And through the gospel, we begin to have this one-way forgiveness to others. And that's where this verse is taking you as a Christian. It's taking you to a place where you start extending love in a one way sense. Not that you don't sin, because you might have to apologize too, but starts to give you ability to shallock others as God has shallocked you. So the Jewish audience, when they heard this in the Lord's Prayer, and you got to remember, we hear the Lord's Prayer now, and we, we memorize it. Back then, he, he was modifying some Jewish prayers, and, and this was a new prayer to them. And Jesus doesn't explain any of the lines of the, Lord, of the Lord's Prayer, except this one. You'll finish verse 13 next week, with, and then verse 14 and 15, if you read on just a second, Jesus actually goes back and clarifies what he means, because this line would be so shocking that God put this shallock, this forgiveness of God, directly next to the forgiveness we should give others. And he clarifies it like this. And I love when Jesus clarifies, you know, politicians today, they like redact what they say. Jesus double downs. Je- Jesus never like misspeaks or overspeaks. He speaks exactly what he wants to say. Verses 14 and 15 read this: For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So to be clear, we don't forgive sins divinely. We're not Jesus. We can't take away another's sin. But through Christ, we can forgive outrageous sins against us completely. We can love our enemies as Jesus calls us to. Remember, forgiveness is costly to Christ, And when you forgive over something big, it's going to be costly to you. There's a cost in releasing a debt against you if it's a big deal. But that's the moment where you join in your sufferings with Jesus because that's what he's done on our behalf. He's released us, and as his followers, we join in that suffering. And to be honest, that might be the clearest path to Christ-likeness in our entire lives is when we start to enable and have the ability to forgive others. So we're free to forgive, and in fact, we must forgive. The work of a Christian is to forgive others, and Jesus doesn't leave us here to do it ourselves. He actually gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in you if you're a Christian. It comes into you, Ephesians 1, and dwells with you in you. And Jesus says in John 20 that the Holy Spirit, its primary work, one of its primary works, is to help us forgive others. And two, we must we're free to forgive. In fact, we must. The second reason is we must forgive because if you're a Christian, you believe every sin that's ever been committed is either paid for by Jesus on the cross or will be paid for at the end of time by that person's own blood. And so to be a Christian is the step into the world of God where there are no unaccounted for sins. And you can have mercy that you know this person will receive punishment for their sins, or they'll find the punishment paid for in Jesus. And either way, that takes us off the judgment seat. I didn't have the right to judge them in the first place, but certainly I can't withhold forgiveness hoping for justice, because we're certain justice will come either through Christ's blood or their own before God. So the radical teaching of forgiveness stands only upon Jesus and his cross, that a forgiven people can forgive additionally all wrongs that will be made right one day. So if you want revenge in life, if you want vengeance in life, Christianity is not a good religion for you. If your faith is a place to be religious about expressing your bitterness at the system or the world or how people have hurt you, then Christianity is probably not going to be a good fit either. But if you see your sin and you need forgiveness first, and you crave to see justice done in the world, then welcome home to the world of Christ, the world where justice is always done and mercy is plentiful. We don't earn or deserve our salvation by forgiving others. Instead, forgiving others is a positive sign of God's grace at work in your life. You know God's forgiveness is happening when you start to feel this ability to release others and forgive them. All right. Movement three, to the deepest part of all. I always tell people when they're like, I want to go deep. I always say, dude, let's go deep. Application. It doesn't get more real than your own life. You know, there is no secret beyond our obedience to Jesus in our actual life. This is as deep as it's going to go. So how do we apply these truths? First big one, consider your forgiveness. It's the obvious one, but it's one that we need to stop and pause on. If you are not a Christian today, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're checking out Veritas Dayton. And I absolutely, as someone who loves and follows Jesus, I want you to consider Jesus' great offer to you, that forgiveness of sins is absolutely free. And it's absolutely free to you. There's no bait and switch. God forgives you and brings you into his family and gives you a new heart to want and start to obey. There's no need to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Jesus is standing at the car wash of life, and he'll be there forever, washing us, loving us, and helping us onward. So please, repent and believe in Jesus. I'm unashamedly about that. I love Jesus. It was the best decision I've ever made. Two, if you are a Christian today, let's first step, let's make awareness of our forgiveness, considering our forgiveness. Help us stop and pause next time we feel we've been sinned against. Next time we feel like someone owes us an apology, next time we feel sinned against, and let us consider our forgiveness and ask, have we done something to cause this? Have we sinned too in this relationship? Have we overlooked something? Lord, search me and know me. That's what Psalm 139 says. Because notice in this passage with Jesus, he doesn't say, Lord, forgive us our debt. He says, Lord, forgive us our debts. There's a multitude of sins we've committed in the past and are currently committing now that we need awareness brought to us. And Jesus is gracious and will do that. So pursue reconciliation, but just consider yourself first. And if by considering ourselves first, we need to become sorry specialists. Christians of all people should be sorry specialists. When you know Christ, it's easy to say, I'm sorry. And it's something to grow in. Because if you meet someone who never needs to say they're sorry, that's a proud person. And they don't really know themselves, and they certainly don't know God at all. Because when we stand before a holy God, suddenly our imperfections become clearer and clearer, and our ability to to say sorry grows. And so I wish I could say my ministry has been powerful proclamation of the gospel, and as a Christian, that's been the most fruitful thing. But I actually think the most fruitful thing in my personal life has been... My readiness for reconciliation of saying I'm sorry for dumb things I've said or done or thought. And so I invite you into the wonderful ministry. If you want to blow people away at work with the gospel, start with saying you're sorry first and wanting to say sorry to reconcile between them and before God more than just solve the issue. Say sorry whether it's 99% your fault or 1% your fault at work or at home. That will be a radical gospel message to them much more than us just saying it louder. If you want to live it out, say sorry first. And quickly, I want to say this too. If you feel like you've blown it and you have wasted relationships, wasted years, wasted time, wasted opportunities, maybe with your parents, maybe with your siblings, maybe with your kids, maybe, who knows? I want to say there's a road back. I have no idea what God would do. But I do know if you repent and seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation, God says nothing's impossible with him. And there's always hope, and who knows what God's doing. He's restoring the whole world. Who knows how he could turn back the clock in whatever relationship and restore whatever could happen. Number two, so application one is consider our forgiveness. Application two is fully forgive. Sometimes we forgive some sin or deed against against us, but we don't really forgive. And this is called a grudge, or holding a grudge. And we're called, as Christians, to forgive from the heart, Matthew 18, 35. And here's the part where grudges are really silly. We think we're hurting others by holding a grudge, or holding this thing against them of what they did. But holding a grudge is like drinking poison and really hoping they die. Because the bitterness of a grudge is like cancer to your soul. It's disobedient to God. Suddenly, their sin against you puts you in active sin before God because of your unwillingness to forgive, or a lot of times there has been a reconciliation, you just hold on anyways. I bid you, let the grudges go. I once had a wonderful mentor. We were at marriage counseling, me and my wife, Elena, before premarital counseling time. We were sitting before him and his wife, and he was going over how to, how to argue in a healthy way, you know, don't raise your voices, don't name call. And he goes, and don't bring up grudge tapes. And I go, what's a grudge tape, bro? That's, that's a made-up word. And he said, oh, that is true. And he said, grudge tapes is when you stop a fight because you're so emotional or you just want to win or you're so angry. And suddenly you just bring up old sins, old fights, old patterns, old things that happened with your spouse to win the fight. And you heap guilt and shame and anger into the fight. And it distracts from the, the, the issue, the argument. And suddenly you're having a much more nuclear battle about righteousness and goodness and if they're a good person rather than just settling the argument. And so I want en- to uh, encourage you today. Let grudge tapes go because they're so toxic to our relationships. Because underneath a grudge tape believes that people don't change and when people don't change enters a relationship the relationship has begun to die psychologists say it's one of the most toxic possible things to believe people won't change and they can't be different in a year and as christians we believe the direct opposite no one is too far gone no one is too set in their ways christ is making all things new third and final application so we consider our forgiveness, we fully forgive, and last, we faithfully forgive. And this is a daily choice. For the big wounds in life, those horrible things that were said or done against you, there's a choice you must make to forgive, but it's a choice you may, must make every day after, for here to forever, because forgiveness works like that. It's a big choice, and then it's a daily choice. But I want you to hear these big uh, forgiveness moments isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of forgiveness and be strong. It's actually take your weakness and pain and offer them to Jesus and say, Lord, help me. You're not going to be able to forgive those big life or story-altering moments on your own. And that's why Christ has forgiven and now empowers us. And so when that next time that thought, that pain, that mental video of their sin comes to you, I just ad- I encourage you. Don't entertain it. If you've already dealt with it, you've talked it through, with counselors and friends and things like that, you've had reconciliation, let the thought pass. Don't add commentary. Don't dissect it. Don't go into the list of wrongs or rights. Let it pass and choose forgiveness. Because if we entertain the thought, we'll be entrapped by it. And we'll spin out or we'll have retribution fantasies or let bitterness grow all over again. So you have a choice daily, and I encourage this, this, this young church, don't let unaddressed sin get between you. First Peter uh, 1, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. I encourage you, if it's a small thing, let love cover the sin and move on. If it's a big thing, go to them quickly. Tell them you're sorry. Consider your forgiveness first. Be ready to fully forgive. And then make a choice out of your reconciliation to be bonded even closer in the bigness and power of God in our life. Imagine if Veritas Dayton was known as a people of forgiveness, where mercy abounded. And the power of this place and this people would be so infectious because people knew they didn't let relationships get crazy. They forgave and loved others well to the best of their abilities. God forgives us and empowers us to forgive. And so remember, Christians, as we take communion and Garrison's going to come up and pray for us and lead us in communion, we're debt-free. If you're in Jesus, you're debt-free, and we're free to ask for forgiveness, experience daily cleansing, and work hard to forgive others.